questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's interview, and believe me when I tell you that you do not want to miss it. A lot of uncensored material that you will not hear anywhere else. Go to VeritasRadio.com and click on subscribe. It's time for you to get the whole truth. And if you haven't tried pure organic sulfur, well, you're missing out. Go to the Veritas store and check it out. And by the way, there is a possibility that I may be bringing MMS back. Send me an email if you're interested. I mean, for a few years now, we stopped selling it, but I have found a supplier. But I want to know from you first. Let me know if you're interested, and I may bring it back. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, have feedback, or simply just want to write, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. What would you do if you discovered the end times and the Antichrist were somehow interconnected with giants, modern conspiracy theories, aliens, vampires, secret societies, and fairies? What would you do if you learned refugees from another apocalypse, dutifully encoded dire warnings into worldwide testimonies, preserving them for a specific generation, this generation concerning an ancient and ongoing conspiracy to enslave humankind? Would you simply walk away? Seriously, would you really tell anyone? Or would you disregard the personal onslaughts that would be sure to follow the expose of such controversial discoveries? Tonight's guest has written an incredible book that would require one full year of interviews to discuss it all. Tonight I will do my best to scratch the surface, and if he agrees, we'll invite him back in the future to tell us more. The book is titled The Genesis Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humanity. His name is Gary Wayne, a Christian contrarian who has maintained a lifelong love affair with biblical prophecy, history, and mythology. His extensive study has encompassed the Holy Bible, the Gnostic scriptures, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, Gilgamesh, and other ancient epics, language etymology, and secret society publications. His website is Genesis, the number six, conspiracy.com. And he joins us today on Veritas. Hello, Gary, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Very good, and so happy to be with you today. And I think what we're going to talk about is going to hopefully raise some curiosity amongst your audience. And I think it's going to be a very, very good discussion. It certainly, certainly will. You have been very highly recommended. And when you and I spoke a few weeks ago, and we had to have you on, the first question, well, I have the book right here, and I have to tell you, I have hundreds, if not thousands of books in my library. And this is probably one of the lengthiest books I have in my possession. So I have to ask you, how did this all begin for you? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, way into writing such a large book. And, and by the way, uh, I, I edited out 350 pages just so I could get it down to at least the size that I think that it could get published. Um, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to write uh, my first book that was I intended to write it as the shortest book I was going to write. And I wanted to cut my teeth on something that I thought was going to be something relatively easy. And so I'm a prophecy buff at heart. And as I was getting into prophecy, and I'm also a history buff, and I'm a mythology buff, and, and you know, I just love to read. So, But as I was looking at uh, drafting and cataloging all the different prophecy narratives that run through the Bible, you know, you quickly run into Genesis 6, and you have these crazy things uh, called giants being talked about in Genesis 6, and then they come up after the flood. And so they also come up in prophecy where 
Jesus talks about his second coming and the signs of the end of the age will be like the days of Noah. And then there's demons and there's fallen angels and there's supernatural events that happen throughout Revelation and end time prophecy. And I wanted just to sort of just quickly connect the two because I felt somehow that they were probably connected. So I was just going to write a simple, easy, short book, cut my craft on that book and then go on to write some of the other books that I was, uh, I'm, I'm also hoping to write. But something happened along the way. And so as I started to dig and ask more questions, uh, I came across books and information whether or not it was in other religions or in other mythologies or in history, and particularly when I got into the secret societies and their books and their writings, that the whole investigative nature and what I was going to do changed somewhat. So it's still a 6,000-year investigation uh, into connecting the dots between the House of Dragon, as I like to call them, and the end time, but it also turned into a conspiracy investigation. And then as I asked more questions about that aspect, it just led to more and more and more and more. And so I finally had to cut it off. And because you could just, it's such a rabbit hole that you can go down to, it just never ends, it seems. So uh, at some point in time, I thought, well, I, I'm just telling more and giving more information about the same sort of things, and I need to cut it back and uh, try and make it presentable and something that hopefully somebody would want to read. So that was kind of the journey. And so I, you know, I did about oh, you know, over 20 years of prophecy research, and then I thought I had everything ready to go and do this book, and then it took me another 12 to 15 years to write the book. And I think this happens to anyone who's a truth. Seeker, we open one door, and I think this might have happened to you while writing the book. We open one door, then 10 doors opens. So you may have had a few chapters in mind, and then they just magnified and they multiplied. But Christian Contrarian, for those who might not know what that means, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm a Christian, and uh, first and foremost. But as a Contrarian is the second part to what I like to call myself, is, is I don't readily accept the status quo. I don't readily accept just what people tell me or what somebody might tell me something says or what something is all about. I have to verify it for myself. And I do that with the Bible as well, as well as everything else that I investigate. And so that's why I'm a contrarian. And so I will arrive at some views, even from a Christian perspective, particularly from a Christian perspective, that other Christians may not have looked at before because they've never challenged it. And some of it will be a little bit controversial for, for some. But again, I do measure everything um, that I do from a Christian perspective against the Bible. And then when I'm using outside sources, I let them speak for themselves. And I use a vast amount of outside sources because I'm letting them tell their story and I don't want to manipulate what they're saying. And when that runs contrary to what it might say in the Bible, I'll point that out. But I do want, whether or not it's the other religions telling their history or uh, historians as they view history or secret societies in terms of their history or what they want to do, I want it to come out that it's not speculative and I want it to come out that I'm not manipulating what they're saying. And then I match it up and measure it against what it says in the Bible. Well, then you're, you're a breath of fresh air because I grew up a Catholic, and I remember even in school, I would question things in the Bible, and I was told again, time and time again, you don't question. That's the Word of God, and that's the way it is, and you should not be questioning it. What's your take on people who think that way? Well, I think uh, any time that you say the debate is over, um, two things are going on. One is, is that's a bit, uh, you know, like a fascist point of view, and secondly, you're becoming so elite that uh, it it just does not uh, a zealot. Well with Pardon me? A zealot. A zealot, absolutely. And you ought to be able to look at everything. You ought to be sound in your views, and you ought to be able to, to defend your views. And if you are wrong or something has been overlooked, you ought to be able to say, okay, I get that. I understand that now. And that's I get, And I get a lot of that. From people who are listening to me, they come to me and say, you know, I've never looked at it from that point of view before, and I really like what you're saying, or you're answering so many questions about what 
always bothered me, but nobody would want to talk about. And then the other thing that goes on in church, and certainly as being raised Catholic, you would know this, is they don't deal that much in the supernatural, and Genesis 6 seems to be just taboo, right? Right. And, and that's not just in the Catholic Church, that's in most churches. And I have ministers uh, who contact me and say, you know, we never were taught any of this in seminary school. Well, it's not only with religious people, it's even with well, if we can call China, for example, an atheist country, because our website, multiple times we have to even call the consulate and the embassy in Washington, so we are unblocked in China, because they block us there because they consider us to be spewing superstitious material, if you can believe that. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very much that people, you know, they have free choice or they should have free choice. And that people should choose what they believe and know why they believe what they believe. And not everybody's going to agree on what everybody believes, but I think you have to make that conscious choice as opposed to just sort of walking asleep through life. And I think people who are asleep are easily deceived. Uh, and I know that, you know, on the counterpart of the argument is, is that, you know, you can be maybe a little bit too negative or a little bit too critical, but I think better to ask good, critical, hard questions as to, you know, what's going on? What what are things all about? Why are we here? Where are we going? And why did things happen before? I think those are legitimate questions. Well, right on my Skype, you see one of my favorite quotes. I would rather have questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questions. That yes. Is. Now, when we think of giants, uh, Gary, we usually think of David and Goliath or the Epic of Gilgamesh. I've seen photographs not, not reported to the mainstream media, i.e. National Geographic, uh, which everyone who listens to this program knows who owns Nat Geo. Uh, and yes, there are plenty of Photoshop material out there to muddy the waters, but can you say without a shadow of a doubt that giants existed and walked the earth? And if so, why do the powers that want to be want to hide that from us and, and not say the dinosaurs, for example? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, the big issue with the, the Giants is it doesn't fit with the narrative that uh, the powers to be, whether or not it be religious or secular, are wanting to deal with. It doesn't fit sort of the worldview that they want to present at this point in time. And there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest that uh, Giants existed. And even today, and I have a couple of Facebook pages, um, and on there, uh, I have a Genesis 6 page that I, you know, have, uh, newspaper articles from the, uh, 1800s and 1900s to up to say about 1940 or 1950. And some of these have drawings. Some of these have actual photographs on some of the newer ones. They all have descriptions of all of these giants being discovered in North America. And what is consistent is, is that, and they document it in these newspaper articles that the Smithsonian comes along, takes the excavation, and they're never heard of again. Right. And that happens over and over and over and over and over and over, just as it happens on the little people ex excavations as well. And also, when you get beyond that, you have all of these reliefs and ancient sort of artwork and preservation of these very odd beings that, you know, are recorded in history. And many of them are serpent-like looking. And these are definitely giants, whether it's Egyptian reliefs or it are reliefs in Canaan or anywhere around the world, India. They have all recorded not only in stone and in caves and things, uh, depictions of giants, but also in their mythologies and their histories and their religions. And we also have these elongated skulls that have been discovered. And of course, the ones that are coming to light more of late are the Peruvian ones uh, with the red hair. And, you know, it's one thing to bind your skull and to create that elongated look to look like what these giants look like in the past, but you can't make the skull bigger. Right. And so when they're significantly larger than human skulls, then there's something else going on there. There are skulls that are in like Santorini and the Minoan discoveries and on Crete where they don't even bring these things out for public display. And then 
even if you get beyond that sort of idea, that the understanding that giants are recorded on all five continents in over 500 cultures around the world, as well as a flood story, as, as well as pyramids all over the world, there are so many things that are recorded that are a common sort of history that it is beyond the shadow of a doubt in my mind that that could be a coincidence because you would get the mathematical zero on the combinations and permutations and the odds as you start to calculate that. And they all tell a very similar story. And again, we have accountings of giants, whether or not it's in the Bible or it's in India or it's in Central America, it matters not, or, or North American and the North, North American native tribes there are a wealth of information on these ancient giants and little people. And again, little people are one of these common heritages that are, again, on all continents around the world and in all cultures. So for me, without spending too much time on it and, and noting other uh, testimonies, even at around uh, the time of Jesus with Josephus recording these giant bones that were completely different bioengineered structure than what you humans were, and they kept them on display even at that time uh, because people would wonder at them or accounts that are recorded in Roman history and on and on and on. There's our accounts of giants recorded all throughout our history to be something that could not have happened and just a figment of everybody's imagination just makes no sense to me. And I'm so glad that you're mentioning the Smithsonian because, as you mentioned, they seem to... Uh you know, have for some reason admitted to the destruction of the thousands of giant human skeletons. I'm, I'm yet to see a formal report showing that they're actually admitting to this, but this is the information I'm getting. And also you're mentioning the, the little people, the Homo flores senses from uh, Indonesia, three and a half feet tall. Why is it that Every time I go to New York, I go to the, the Natural History Museum. I just returned from London, went to the Natural History Museum there, and we invariably always see Lucy, the Australopithecus there, uh, you know, showing that we come from apes and apes still running around, but we never see anything about the Homo fluorescensis or giants. Why is that? Well, it seems that if there's any discovery uh, that doesn't fall in with the paradigm and the agenda and the theory that they want to present, it just disappears or gets ignored or gets reclassified as, as something else. And again, I, I don't think that they want to have this information come out until they're ready to bring it out at a certain point in time in history or in the future, sorry, not into history. And so they're controlling this information. And, you know, the, the biggest, the two biggest uh, sources of, uh, and I would actually put a third in there now, of uh, ancient knowledge and discoveries would be the Catholic Church at the Vatican, and the other one would be Freemasonry. And I would also include the Royal Society and its related organizations as separate uh, for also holding significant ancient history and, and evidence. And I would also note that the Royal Society and the Smithsonian, which it would report to, um, the Smithsonian would report to the Royal Society, as all science organizations still do today, uh, would be in partnership with the secret societies or Freemasonry, simply because the Royal Society was created by Freemasonry and the Rosicrucians in the 1640s and officially uh, reassembled in 1660. But what exactly are they trying to hide? Because obviously, from our perspective, we seem to be piercing the veil here, so we get to see a little bit more than what the mainstream population can you know, see or perceive. What is their purpose of keeping this away from our psyche, our, our, our conscience? Yeah, to, to, to literally for control, to control the information and to bring it about when they're ready. So... When, when, and when I say that, I know that sounds almost like a dodge, but I know I'm going to just sort of bring that back and maybe a little bit more into focus is that they are planning, which is, you know, kind of one of the big things about my book and, and what I'm telling, uh, from the beginning. But what they want to do is they want to bring about the end time. 
they want to they don't call it the end time but they want to bring about the end time and so they're doing everything they can to bring about what they would call or bacon would call and and what they uh sort of like to use from a nostalgic uh, perspective as well is the new atlantis and in this new atlantis they'll release all of this information but until they're ready to do that they're going to control the information and just as they don't want people focusing yet, even though it's in behind the curtain, so to speak, of the religion that's behind these societies and organizations, which is not monotheistic, but it's polytheistic. And they're actually called Gnostics. And so they actually have a belief system that they want to impose at the same time as they roll out all of these deceptions in their thousand-year reign that they like to talk about, or the New Age of Atlantis, or the New Golden Age, and the Age of Aquarius, and so many other names that they will call it. A Christian would call it, from a monotheist perspective, the end time, just before we head into the millennium. If I understand you correctly, if they want to bring the dawn of a new era, or a new Atlantis, does that mean that the Atlantis that we refer to on this radio program existed before, and it was united the entire world, and we had our one language, we probably had one religion or spirituality combined with science. Did we have all that at one point in our history? Yes, but not quite as clean as what you have sort of set out. Uh, in prehistory, and depending on which source that you're using, there's more than one civilization as what we get a glimpse at out of the Bible. Uh, if you look at the book of Enoch, which runs quite parallel this is the first book of Enoch as opposed to the book of Giants and the book of Jubilees and a few other books of Enoch. But the first book of Enoch, it runs quite parallel with what the Bible says, but there are seven watchers in the antediluvian epoch. And these seven watchers are gods or angels, depending on how you want to, to classify it from your belief system, who rule over seven cult centers in the ancient world. Now, there are different views as to how many cult centers there were in the ancient world from four to nine, as what is talked about in that show, The Game of Thrones. But that's essentially somewhere in that zone. And I think it's probably more like seven because that's more of the common denominator. And within this realm, you have uh, kingships that are being established and they have a a totalitarian king, which is a Nephilim or a Titan or an Anunnaki or Daitreya or depending on uh, Mitos, if you're in China, it doesn't matter um, what the vernacular name is. They are giant Nephilim, giant king. And that's part of this infrastructure, along with the mystical religion that is developed and is developed before the entrance of, of the giants. But this is seven cult centers that are being ruled over by these seven gods, just as there's seven gods on Mount Olympus. So understand that this is a common ideology of these seven gods, just like there's seven mountains in Taoism. As I say, these are all constitutive and consistent numbers and beliefs that, that go around the world. And so what was going on is Atlantis would have been one of these civilizations. And just as in Atlantis, you have a very similar thing that goes on with uh, Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, you have the sons of God or the angels copulating with human females, and they create these giants. In Atlantis, uh, whether it's in Critias or uh, Timaeus, it does, you know, both by Plato and all the other accounts, is Poseidon goes to a human female called Climene and a few other names and other uh, accounts of it and has Titan offspring. Uh, five sets of twins, and these are giants, Titans, Anunnaki, Nephilim, same thing. And they rule over the ten empires of Atlantis, and it's an expanding uh, empire that they're trying to take over the whole world to usurp with one leader and that one religion from that basic cult center, even though the seven cults are essentially the same religion. So, yes, they were attempting to do that, but two things happen. One is that the Greek uh, civilization, as uh, Plato calls them, um, uh, from Athens, they stop the, uh, the uh, Titan armies coming out of Atlantis with the help of some of their own tit uh, Titans like Hercules. 
Um, and so the second thing that happens is, is that this, there's this violence and rebellion going on all over the world and the gods step in to destroy Atlantis and all the other civilizations in exactly the same way because they're rebelling against the gods. And so, uh, that prevents all of this from happening. But the recollection is, is that this was an age of plenty. This was the golden age. This was the first time, as they call it, in Egypt. And there was no disease and food of plenty and before it started to go to bed. And that's what they're trying to create in the end time or the new age of Atlantis that Bacon likes to talk about. It is has a one world government with a universal religion that works in harmony with science. Um, where it's ruled over by either Nephilim or Titans or the descendants thereof. And this whole concept was written about by uh, Francis Bacon in his uh, book called The New Atlantis. And, of course, Bacon is, is the inspirational founder for the Royal Society that we were talking about a few minutes ago. So to answer your question, yes, that's what they're trying to do. Have you heard that Sir Francis Bacon may, may in fact have been Shakespeare? Yeah, there's a lot of people that actually believe that, and there's uh, a lot of circumstantial evidence to suggest that that's probably the case. You know, certainly Shakespeare was, uh, you know, raised uh, fairly poor, the son of a butcher, and he has an Oxford style of writing that doesn't befit uh, somebody who was raised that way, let alone it doesn't explain how. Shakespeare became, um, got his actual education. And he speaks in Shakespeare of all of the ancient um, classics, whether it's Homer or the Iliad or uh, Ovides, all the great ancient writers he is completely conversant with. He's also completely conversant with the mythologies, whether it's fairy mythology that goes into Midsummer's Dream or some of the ge genealogies of the various kings that he's uh, chronicling. And there is no reasonable way that one can uh, presume that uh, Shakespeare would have been able to write uh, those plays. And also, um, Bacon was uh, a you know, known for his writing, known for uh, how brilliant he was, and he became the the most second most powerful person in England under two 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 kingships, and so he wanted in this line of thinking wanted to keep his uh, writing aspect um, a secret, uh, and uh, he actually had formed a group that comes out of. Uh, uh, Greece, that's called the uh, the Spear Shakers, and and that comes from uh, Apollo and um, I'm trying to think of the other god, maybe Athena, um, where it's it's kind of got to do with that Prometheus allegory, where they're shaking the spirit, the gods, and and developing knowledge and and writing on their own, and so it's he he actually names his organization that. So then to have William Shakespeare with that name Shakespeare is just a coincidence that just it makes makes no sense. And so what Bacon was trying to do as well, and he had hired all of these different writers into this group to create plays and things to develop the English language into a new English language with new words and, and better sort of prose and style so that it could become a legitimate high-ranking language in the world which he seemed to have accomplished through the arts and in the theater. So there's a lot that suggests that that would be the case, um, but we don't have 100% evidence to, uh, to say that, but it just seems that there's no way Shakespeare, with his education, uh, could have written about all of these different things. Yeah, not to derail the conversation with, say, Christopher Columbus, but that's another example that comes to mind. You know, how could a poor Italian peasant wool weaver learned Latin, Spanish, Greek, mathematics, cartography, astronomy, all of a sudden marry to nobility prior to his journey to the Indies and even become a noble, admiral, governor, and viceroy of the new world. It's too good, be, too good to be true, don't you think? Too good to be true. And, you know, funding uh, from 
for his uh, voyages didn't just come from from Spain. It came from other wealthy nobles around Europe. What's very interesting is that he is thought to be uh, a member of Freemasonry. So that in itself would suggest he wasn't this poor individual because it was only the nobles and the elite that were part of Freemasonry then. And he also flew on the Santa Maria, the Templar flag. <laughs> interesting. Do you think that the maps that he used for his journey into the quote-unquote new world were given to him by somebody else? Well, I think he had certainly uh, help with uh, in getting those maps. And again, that would probably be that link back to Freemasonry. And if that is the case, uh, because uh, I, I link the Templars uh, to uh, Freemasonry as being the refugees that went from um, France after 1307 when they were destroyed to Scotland under the Sinclairs, uh, where Freemasonry was formed from the refugee Templars and changed their name. And so Sinclair is uh, not only recognizes the founder of the Freemasons, but his family goes back to the actual organization of the Templars in, in 10, 1099 and before as the St. Clair family from uh, Normandy and France. Uh, that's another rabbit trail. But where I'm going with this, though, is that they had Templar treasures. And so Sinclair's are thought and written about in the craft that he actually made voyages to the New World. And they're removing those secret knowledge and treasures to places like Oak Island that you're probably familiar with and other locations. And so this information would have been passed on to Columbus to do in more of a false flag sort of setting. In a, it's maybe not quite the right word, but as more of a misdirection that they already knew it was there. They just wanted to do it in a way that seemed more plausible through Columbus, I think. It sounds reasonable. Now, the the reason why I said earlier that perhaps one civilization in the past was unified with one religion, one spirituality, uh, with science, uh, one language, was because of all the megalithic structures that we see around the world. Some of them have certain, would you agree, some similarities, almost as if the architects shared their knowledge with one another? Yeah, it's inexplicable. Again, the, you know, doing the calculation of the odds on why you would have obelisks, why would you have pyramids and so many other ancient structures that almost have the same sacred geometry um, right. in it um, and star alignments and so many other things that are just that you just can't explain it through coincidence because things just don't happen that way in coincidence. So. If you dig into what the Freemasons believe is, is that religion starts before the flood and it starts with a, a fellow by the name of uh, Adam, uh, who has taught the seven sacred sciences. And the seven sacred sciences are, you know, uh, what people would understand them today, like, um, you know, rhetoric and uh, geometry, which is the fifth science, and grammar and arithmetic and music. But it's what they do with these sciences that is really, really, really important. And when we look at what Adam does with it, uh, is, is he learns it and starts supplying some of it in Eden, according to the Freemasonry records. But after Eden, after the fall, he teaches the sciences to both Abel and to... Um, Cain. But, of course, Abel is murdered by Cain, and Cain is ostracized. And so now Adam starts teaching with a, a son to be born later, Seth. And they're going to, Seth and Cain are going to apply these sciences in a little bit different way. But according to Freemasonry records, Cain teaches his son Enoch, and there's two Enochs in the Genesis um, genealogies. There's uh, Enoch, son of Cain, and Enoch, son of Jared of the Seth line, and two different individuals completely. Both wrote scripture, both had a big impact in the antediluvian epoch. But Cain develops with Enoch these sciences in a way that are not designed to honor the true God of the universe, but to lead people away, not give them any respect, and to honor the gods of the pantheon that they're worshiping. And that's these watchers and these fallen angels, or the gods as we would know them in polytheist religions around the world. Right? So he invents this mystical religion. And the Freemasons actually credit Enoch with inventing mysticism and the sun-worshipping religion and, and the bull cult. 
And this goes down through the lineages down to Lamech and to Tubal Cain, which is a huge patriarch of Freemasonry as well. And so this is the religion that is is implemented in these seven cult centers that we were talking about. And they all have pretty much the same pantheon as well. They just have different vernacular names for the same gods. And it's the same dualistic good versus evil religion and the dualistic aspect where you have a male god and a female goddess. Very, very interesting. Now, regarding the Book of Enoch, why do you think it was taken out of the Bible? Well, um, as the writings go about that is, is it was felt it was uh, apocryphal, even though it was included, you know, in amongst the first mix. And many of the church fathers even uh, quote them. And if when they say it's apocryphal is its origin or its um, authority is doubted, uh, that they can't verify it. And so it was removed on that aspect. And the, and the book that we have today, it's hard to know whether or not that's the exact book that like the church fathers were referring to or the original book of Enoch. Uh, but we do have one that was discovered and it was uh, translated by a Freemason and a Gnostic who is uh, Robert, not Robert the Bruce, but one of Robert the Bruce's descendants, Alexander Bruce. And so we don't know whether or not there's a corruption in there or not. And we don't know whether or not it's totally uh, monotheist or not. It runs, as I said, quite close to the Bible, except that it has in chapter 60, as I recall, uh, Enoch as being 550 years old. Well, Enoch, if it's of the Sethian line, uh, he was taken to heaven at age 365. So that's either a corruption or a marker put in by the Freemasons uh, over top the original, or there's more things in there we need to be concerned with. But I haven't found much in there that I would be all that concerned with. So I think it's just their marker that they put in. And then there's been other records that have, uh, have uh, substantiated a lot of uh, the translation that, you know, as it's come down. So I think two reasons. One is that... Um, they, it was information that's in Enoch that is very difficult to uh, reconcile at times with how we understand our religion today. And it, it didn't have any issues before as it was understood by the, uh, the, the Jewish people or the other religions. It's just your perspective on, on, on these gods or fallen angels. So I think it was deliberately excluded and uh, maybe for some superficial um, reasons, but I think they just not did not like all that information uh, about what was written down. And Enoch's uh, books are said to have been totally focused on information on prehistory, which is basically what's in Enoch and the end time. So I wonder how much more is out there from Enoch that is still either kept in secret or been destroyed. Now. Have you noticed, going back to the giants for a moment, I just thought of something. Every time I see an image, I wonder if it's real. I have some some images that somebody sent me. I say this all the time. One of our listeners, his father is from Iran, and a few years ago they had an earthquake there. And after the earthquake, apparently, uh, I don't know if it was almost like a city was unearthed, and they started taking pictures, and they found a number of skeletons of nine-foot women, women skeletons. And they send that to me. You never see that in anywhere else. Now, you go to Google Images and you type ancient giants, you'll see you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of images. I wonder how many of those are Photoshopped. I don't know. But the one thing I always wonder is that they usually have some kind of a hole or a gash wound on their heads. It comes to David and Goliath comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it seems, uh, you know, killing a giant, it almost takes a head wound of some sort or chopping off of the head, right. and that's seemingly why that's in all science fiction and horror movies and things like that. Um, there is, uh, there are, uh, limited records about female giants, um, that you're, you were referring to. Certainly in Greek, uh, mythology, there are, um, Titandes, um, or female Titans. And, uh, even Shakespeare will record that when he gets into Midsummer's Night Dream, which is a really bizarre, um, 
story in itself and all the different allegory that he's encoded in there. But uh, there is a uh, king of the fairies, which is called King Oberon. And King Oberon is married to Titania, which is, again, sort of an allegory reflecting genealogies and history that's in the writings of Shakespeare and other writers of the occult. And so Titania is just another sort of allegory for the matriarchal bloodlines of these giants or the female bloodlines. So they were there. They're just, as with most history, the female side is not really recorded as much as the male side, whether it's human or giant. I think that's pretty much a constant. Uh, but with the female giants, there's almost nothing out there, right? It's it's very, very, very uh, limited at that. But we also have female giants that are in the Bible, like uh, Timna, for an example, out of uh, the... The, uh, the people of uh, Seir and Edom that the descendants of Esau marry into, and Eliphaz, son of Esau, marries Timna, who is a Horite, which is a giant, uh, and they have a son named Amalek, and create the great Amal- Amalekite nation. So again, there are accounts of uh, female giants, um, but uh, they're few and far between. And yes, how to kill a giant. Uh, there's in in my understanding of, of history, there's two types of giants. So the first generation of the giants that had an immortal spirit. And then there's the descendants and the, and the, uh, giants that are begat thereafter, uh, which, uh, don't have an immortal spirit. And, but even so, they're very, very hard to kill. Um, and maybe this whole idea goes back to making sure that they're dead, uh, because, what happened in prehistory, and it's called hero worship uh, in Greek mythology, and uh, the Taoists have a same um, understanding of belief system that were these demigods, and that's what they were, is they were demigods. Um, when they did die, the ones with the immortal spirits, those spirits do not go to sleep, and they're not permitted into heaven, and these are the demons, but they, in the hero worship and in Taoism, they would come back to haunt the city that they ruled over because they no longer have a body and they would. And so there would be all of these rituals to appease this demon that had come back from this hero. So um, there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff in, in the whole history of how we understand giants. Um, and I also want to put out there when we're talking about a giant um, that I think the audience should understand that we're not talking about somebody that's eight feet tall. We're not talking about something that's tall and skinny. We are talking about beings that were 20 to 40 feet tall, uh, by how most people doing research would, would, uh, set that out. Now in, in Enoch, they said there were 300 L's and, but nobody knows how long an L actually was. So it's hard to understand, um, what that length is, but some people say they were 400 feet tall based on that. But again, we don't know how long an L actually was. But what we can sort of rein in from around the world is 20 to 40 feet is is, is a common denominator. And even when we look at um, how they were measuring them, we have to understand that Goliath was bigger than 8 feet tall because that's a common cubit of 18 inches, and he would have been part of the king, which he was. He was king of Gath. So he would have been measured on a royal cubit, which is very close to 21 inches. So he'd been more like 10 to 11 feet. King Og in the Bible had a bed on a common cubit basis that was about 13 feet long, uh, but that would be closer to 16 feet, between 15 and 16 feet, uh, using a royal cubit. And so that would make Og likely, you know, somewhere around 14 to 15 feet tall. And he was so heavy that they couldn't make the bed out of wood because it would collapse the wood, so they had to make it out of iron. So it gives you an idea on the proportions. And they weren't just tall. They were wide and muscular. So if the average human has a height to width ratio of about three to one, the Nephilim had a height to width ratio of about uh, two to one. So they were about 50% wider. So these things were absolutely monstrous human beings. 
So not only were these giants large and wide and heavy, I mean, they would have had a weight that would have been about, you know, depending on the size, uh, anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 pounds. And they also had a face uh, that glowed. They were called the Shining Ones, whether or not it's in fairy mythology or in the Anunnaki or all throughout the Middle East because their eyes glowed. And they also had a face of a snake. And how we know that is, is that's recorded in some Gnostic Gospels, but they look just like their fathers, and their fathers were seraphim angels. And the seraphim come out of Isaiah 6 as as uh, fiery serpent angels, six-winged angels. And these were the ones who were the watchers. And there are several different orders, and so this order of watchers, or Gregorias, are known in Greek out of the seraphim, they were the seven that had the seven cult centers. And these are the ones with other seraphim angels that went to Mount Hermon to copulate with human females. And so they passed this trade on. And they also had longer necks. So face of a face of a snake, longer necks, powerfully wide, adept military warriors that were demigods because the original ones had the immortal spirit. Uh, but after that, they didn't because in Genesis 6, God steps in and limits life to 120 years, which takes a, a little while to, to come about. But that immortal spirit after a certain period of time absolutely disappears. And is, this again, why, this, is this why the Old Testament shows hundreds, if not thousands of years of lifespan, and the New Testament has 120? Yeah. Yes. And also we get this out of other mythologies and religions that at some point in time, the ruling Titans or Anunnaki, they go from a judicious rule and start turning against the world and humankind because somehow the human nature is overtaking the divine nature and it turns them to evil. Uh, so there's a common sort of, uh, uh, not an understanding, but a kind of a doctrine as to what happens to these giants. And I think that's just a reflection of repopulating over generations with human females that they start to to, to uh, decline in their nature. So, Throughout the interview, I'm going to be asking you sometimes questions that members of the audience have sent me. For example, here's one, since we're talking about giants, this may sound humorous, but I think the, the listener is serious. He says, my question is, if this were the case, how were these giant hybrid babies, one, conceived, normal coitus, between a giant and a human woman, two, delivered, normal delivery or cesarean. And he says, I can't imagine, number one, the human woman coping with a giant phallus, and two, the human mother or giant hybrid baby surviving a delivery. Valid question, actually. Yeah, so it's hard to imagine that they could they could take the male phallus. But if you look into Egyptian history, you see them pouring the semen into the females. Uh, as part of the rituals, perhaps that's the way it was. Uh, but that's that's the smaller issue for me. The larger issue is is um, after you conceive the baby, how do you deliver it? Right. And Enoch quite clear as to what happens um, with that aspect of it is that they were the babies were too large to um, to be delivered, and so they butchered the mothers in a cesarean type of. Uh, way with a knife and splitting open the 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 bellies and all the uh the the mothers died so they discard they essentially quote unquote discarding the women yes huh. yeah they they slaughtered the the women mothers in favor of the demigod babies interesting now the nephilim and the fallen angels are they one of the same or are they different well uh there are people that will um conf conflate the two uh, they are different, um, and there's outside sources that also will kind of conflate it, because in, in the Greek mythology, you have the titans of heaven and the titans and titan demigods of the earth. You have the Anunnaki in Sumerian mythology of heaven and the Anunnaki of the earth. In fairy mythology, you have the fairies of heaven and the fairies of the earth. And so you, you've got... Um, 
two different classifications there. And what I think what you've got going on there when people conflate that is, A, that doesn't come out of the Bible, but I think they're bringing that in from polytheism. And so what happens is that these demigods or these gods that are producing the demigods, which are the Nephilim or the Titans, is, is that they also have the ability when they take a form in um, our physical world, as opposed to the spiritual dimension where they came from, that they can also take a gender of their choice. And so there's a lot of thought that they did actually copulate with each other to create the lower gods of the pantheon, because you have this duplication of male and female as you descend down that pantheon. And then you also have the gods mating with human females to create the earthborn uh, Nephilim. So now if we take that back to Genesis, you have the sons of God uh, who are the Ben-Ha-Elohim. These are uh, the, the the angels. And for a Christian that might be listening to it, it is, is go to Job 1.6 or Job 2.1 or Job 38.4-7. And depending on the translation that you're going to be using, it's going to either call them the sons of God, which they're talking about angels or angels with a annotation and a note at the bottom of the page saying angels are the sons of God. And they are not the sons of God of of the New Testament because those are humans who are adopted into the New Covenant and they're clearly is said in um in Hebrews twelve seven that um uh, these it, they're adopted in and even though they have human fathers. So we need not to conflate that. I don't want to get into too much biblical doctrine here unless somebody really wants me to sure. Um, but understand that the, the sons of God are the fallen angels. These are the seraphim watchers. And they produce with the uh, human females giants or Nephilim, depending on which translation that you're talking about. If it says giants, it, the Hebrew word it says is Nephilim, and other translations just use Nephilim. So they produce these demigods. Uh, and they're also known as men of renown and mighty ones, or men of renowned and heroes of old, depending on what translation that you're using for. And that comes from the uh, Hebrew word gibberim. And so those are two different terms. You can be human and a gibberim because you're a mighty warrior, um, but you can't be human and a Nephilim. So the Nephilim were both, because these were also evil tyrants. These were also the evil kings, which is all part of the gibberim meeting. So you have the three segregations there in um, Genesis 6 of the sons of God, uh, the Ben Elohim, and then you have the giants that are produced if you're using the King James Version, which goes back to the Hebrew Nephilim, and then you have, and they became uh, the mighty warriors and the mighty ones of uh, of old, and the heroes of of, of renown. So uh, those are that's the word gibbering. There's a, there's a clear delineation in there, and gibbering because a lot of people will say that Nimrod was. Uh, a giant because he was also known as a mighty one or a gibberine and it's actually used as gibberine but gibberine is also used for angels and in the psalms um in 103 and also used with the mighty ones for the warriors of david not all the uh warriors of david were uh from outside of israel so there's a lot of israelites in with his mighty ones and they were definitely not um, giants. So you have to be careful with that word gibbering. It's more of a description of what these mighty rulers did in the past. The Nephilim, were there different types? In other words, the earthly Nephilim and the, do we call it extraterrestrial Nephilim? Yeah, so um, certainly not in, in, the, in the biblical aspect, although I guess you could call, if you wanted to, to call the fallen angels Nephilim, but we take NPL, which is the root of, Neph- uh, of Nephilim, that stands for fallen ones. So is that meaning fallen angels as well? Um, and or and it's also, does that mean that the, uh, the, the Nephilim also fell, uh, the, the giants? You could probably take that either way. Um, but we don't get a Nephilim name for fallen angels anywhere in the Bible or anywhere in the books of Enoch. Now the question is, what happened? I mean, I know we see these wounds, head wounds on these skeletons, but a, a race of beings so so large, yeah. why did they become extinct that we know of? Well, that we know of. And uh, so 
for people that may haven't really made or connected the dots on this is that these giants were created before the flood. Okay. So the flood wipes out almost everything on the earth. And this is the same story that's told all throughout the earth. Right. Uh, Okay. So it's not just, just a biblical uh, story that we're talking about here. But what's interesting in Genesis is in Genesis six, again, it says they were both before and after again. Right. So they lived at that time and after. And then they show up after the flood. So, but the Bible doesn't say how they showed up after the flood. It just says that they exist. And we know that they exist because you have nations like the Rephaim and the Anakim and the Azim and the Avim and the Emin and the Zamzumzim and on and on and on of all of these giant nations described as either Rephaim or Anakim and vernacular names thereof. But they don't descend out of the table of nations, which from a biblical perspective is uh, the, the genealogies and the nations formed from the descendants of Noah and the three sons. Right. And that's in First Chronicles and in Genesis. So they don't have any linkage back there. And they just come up and show up out of nowhere and they're giants. And we know that they're called Nephilim and connected to, to, to Nephilim because you have the the. Anakites that are said descend from, uh, are the descendants of Nephilim. And then Anakim are also said to be Raphaim. So you have Anakim, uh, Raphaim, and Nephilim descending it back, and they show up. What's interesting is, is there's only a few ways that this can happen, that they can show up after the flood, if you accept that pretty much everything is wiped out uh, on the earth with the flood. Because one is they're on the ark which is uh, some people believe that uh, uh, either there was DNA in Noah's uh, son's wives that carried the uh, the DNA for Nephilim, or uh, as the Gnostics will talk about uh, extensively, is, is that uh, anywhere from Ham to all of the three sons to everybody on the ark were giants, and that's how they survived the flood, but then that doesn't answer how humans survived the flood. Um, but Gnostics aren't always consistent in their Gospels. I'm just throwing throwing that out. Um, they also talk about, the Gnostics also talk about uh, fallen angels uh, helping uh, humans and giants to survive the flood. And this is something that's recorded, whether it's in Greek mythology or the Kishimaya or the Egyptian mythology or the Anunnaki, is, is that they get help from the fallen angels because they're warning them that the flood is coming. So they either get help by surviving it by either on the, on an ark or another ark, or um, they are taken off world or as in a cloud, as in what Amaka Seth was in the Gnostic religion, he's actually protected within a cloud or off earth somehow, some way. And some people even believe within the earth. And then the last way is, is that you could have a second incursion after the flood by the angels that weren't imprisoned in the abyss because only the impassioned ones were. So you could have had a second incursion. So now if we go to something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, that's very interesting because that is used in schools uh, as the most ancient of the surviving records of, of, of the flood story, even though it's part of a larger uh, set of stories, and the main characters in there to be aware of are Gilgamesh, Enkidu, or Akedon, depending on which translation you're using, and uh, Atnaptishan, and or Zayazudra, again, depending on the translation that you're using. So Gilgamesh is, is described as being created after the flood um, and is two-thirds human, or one-third human and two-thirds God. And Enkidu is created to offset this brutal dictator by the gods because he's just running amok over the uh, the humans that are under his uh, his kingship and absolutely brutal dictator. And so Enkidu is created to offset Gilgamesh, but in sparring, um, Enkidu learns that Gilgamesh is actually stronger than he is, and Enkidu is created by the gods. And he is two-thirds god and one-third human. And Enkidu and Gilgamesh become friends, and as the whole story progresses, now we go into the flood story that is being discussed in, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and this is Apnapishan, who is the king 
at the time of the flood. And he and his family are instructed by the gods uh, to build an ark and to put animals on there, a very similar story to what goes on in the Bible, to ride out the flood. And, of course, Utnapishtim is also two-thirds god and one-third human, so another demigod. And so within the epic of Gilgamesh story is, is you have survival on another flood, or, or survival on another ark, and you have second incursion, and because we're all talking about giants. So the story is similar on the macro level, but once you get below the macro sort of story, the details are not reconcilable with the human survival story that's recorded in the Book of Noah. And there are human survival stories of surviving on arcs around the world and, or climbing to a top of a mountain and, and things like that as well. So those are the ways that um, they were able to sur- survive the flood, but certainly not in great numbers. So whether they're recreated after the flood or they, there's a few, a precious few that are surviving after the flood to repopulate the earth, there's not a lot. So a very, very similar story to human population trying to um, be repopulated. And just as you have the same type of story, just quickly, with what they call the uh, Greek uh, Noah story. It's a different story again, because, again, it's talking about um, Deucalion and Pyrrha. And Deucalion is the son of Prometheus, and Prometheus is either a Titan god or a Titan Nephilim. And so either way, he, Deucalion, is Nephilim. And so, again, that's just telling another giant survival story. And so when you have these other stories around the world, you, you, you really get down to two different sort of choices. One being is that, the other, from a Christian perspective, um, one being is that all the other stories are either corrupted forms of the book of Genesis and just older surviving sort of source documents and things, or, which is more likely, uh, is that they are a parallel account, and all these other ones around the world are parallel accounts, telling of the same events, but from a polytheist perspective. I'm thinking of these giants, and I'm also thinking of Balpic. I presume you're very familiar with Balpic and those yep. monumental structures, the stones. Do you think giants had something to do with those structures? Oh, I think they participated, but not in the way that people have, I think, um, said that they were lifting these things themselves. And um, I, I, I don't think that that was the case. I think what was the case, though, is, is they were in partnership with this. And as, as being kings and the, and the nobles that were ruling over the antediluvian epoch at that time, I think it makes sense that they were part of it because they were the kings. See, the, the question I always have is th- these things are what some estimate that are, there are 2,000 tons each. Yeah. The question is, why were they left there? I mean, these perfect rectangles, why were they left there that way? Um, either something interrupted them or they... Exactly. Did, yeah. Um, and again, I go back to what was the technology that was utilized to uh, even consider building these right. type of monuments and, and stones. And this goes back to those seven sacred sciences. So the development of these sciences... Uh, were developed to a level, when you look at outside sources from the Bible, to a level that would rival what we have today or even more. Well, hold it right there, because can you discuss perhaps the technology? Because this is something that we cannot even replicate or you can even come close with 21st century technology. We always think of these ancient ones, these, these people, these antiquated people. Well, we can't even come close to them. But let's discuss that in part two. When we come back, I also want to discuss the bloodlines. Did the Nephilim track their bloodlines to prevent dilution? And perhaps in their eyes, they didn't want a mundane, a more mundane version of themselves and so much more. We also have questions from members of the audience. How can people buy the book, The Genesis Conspiracy? Gary. You can... You can go to my website, www.genesis6conspiracy.com. That's Genesis 6 with the number 6. And if you want to buy a copy, uh, you can go to uh, buy from uh, or buy now and then click on that. And then you'll have a couple options. One will be buy from me for a signed copy. There will also be links to barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com and to Kindle. 
And where else you can get a hold of the book is, is through any online bookstore. And it may not be carried in your local bookstore, but if you did want to support that store, my book is distributed by Bookmasters. So they can order the book from that distributor who supplies the uh, uh, build and mortar concrete stores. So fairly, fairly readily available. And uh, like I said, if you want a signed copy, go to my website. And thanks for sending the bookmark inside of the book. Comes very handy with an 800 page book that I know <laughs> it's going to take time for me to finish reading. But, folks, it's so powerful. Your website, it's Genesis Number Six Conspiracy.com. And by the way, don't you have a special for our listeners? Um, yes. Um, so, uh, if, if somebody wants to place an order uh, for this book, uh, let me know. And um, if they've listened to this show, and uh, I'll discount the book to uh, $20, but I'll have to make special arrangements. So, they'll need to get a hold of me through the website for me to make that happen. That's fine. And we have people from all over the world. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is a very fascinating interview. We're just scratching the surface. I'm here with Gary Wayne, and we have so much more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for lots of great products. Thank you.